They say that talking about music is like dancing about architecture. And according to historian William C. Waterhouse and this other guy, Garson O'Toole, who, uh, who has a website called QuoteInvestigator.com, that is supposedly credited to comedian and actor Martin Mull. And he was almost certainly borrowing on an older quote that was talking about music is like singing about economics in 1819 or 1818. And so it's probably in a kind of an older expression that's understood, historically speaking, since at least since we've been able to record music and listen back to it uh, through the invention of the phonograph, etc. It's been understood that to talk about music is a futile gesture. That said, I'm having a lot of fun doing it, and I'm having a lot of fun having people come on and talk about it. This week... An old friend of mine, Adam Thomas from Ohio, who I knew in Philadelphia, uh, has come on to talk about R.E.M.'s Monster from 1994. I keep doing this thing where I'm like, hey, uh, guest, tell the audience how we know each other. And then in the intro prior to that, uh, I tell the audience how the two of us know each other. But, uh, you know, it's early still in the podcast lifespan. And uh, I'm, I'm going to allow myself the occasional bumble and fumble. So at any rate, he and I worked uh, at a college bookstore at Temple University. He was technically my boss. Uh, one of the many customer service jobs I've had in my life. And one of the many jobs I had when I was getting my, well, almost PhD at Temple. So I had not seen him in some years. And it turns out that he now lives not terribly far from me, a couple hours away. Uh, so he came up and he's done my first interview in person here. So you can listen to us speak face to face like humans do. You can hear my dogs, particularly Scruffy, barking in the background when he comes in. And you can hear the microphone getting kind of passed back and forth here and there probably. So sorry about that. It was fun to do it that way. So if you decide to come on the podcast, if it's something that you want to do and you live locally here in the Southeast Michigan area, you're more than welcome to come to my home and do the podcast provided you're someone I know or, you know, you don't seem murderous. Uh, and otherwise, of course, we would just do it over Zoom, which is how I'm doing it with most people. But it was nice to reconnect with Adam. He and I have a ongoing love of beer and sandwiches that we continued in our visit together. So here's me and Adam talking about the 1994 album Monster by the, how can I, what can I say about R.E.M.? What, iconic, epic, trendsetting, groundbreaking, pioneering by the band R.E.M.? Okay, 
Okay. Uh, welcome, Adam. Thank you for joining me on my new podcast. No problem, Travis. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing good, buddy. I'm doing real good. Thanks. So, how do you and I know each other? Oh, well, let's see here. We met when I came to Temple University while you were doing your graduate work there. So, we've known each other for, let's see here, what is it now, nine years? Uh, when was the last time we saw each other? Ooh, 2018. <laughs> so, that would have been probably June of 2018 was the last time we saw each other. No, no, 2016. 2016, even longer. And we've both aged beautifully. <laughs> yes, we have. Good. So we used to sell books at the Temple University bookstore together. What stands out to you about those days at the bookstore? Not having enough people. That's for okay. sure. Because I remember it was you, me, Colin, a couple other people that worked. And that was pretty much it. We really <laughs> didn't have any other supporting staff. Who did the work? Who did the work. Yeah, there was like a dozen, <laughs> half a dozen of us that actually showed up to work every day. <laughs> It was minimum wage, uh, at least in our department. People definitely worked in other departments. But I, my, I recall most, um, yeah, you, you, thank you for saying that I worked, because I remember hiding in the back with Renee and Carnell and the other guys in the warehouse as much as humanly possible to get away from, like, the actual customer service of the job. Oh, I didn't have that luxury. I had to stay out there. My desk was right as you walked in. Management, sucker. <laughs> All right, so we're here to talk about the REM album Monster that came out in 1994. Do you remember like how you came to this album? Yeah, it was kind of... Uh, I wasn't an REM fan back in the day. So I my first exposure to real REM outside of, you know, It's the End of the World and Everybody Hurts was 1996-97, my junior year of high school. Uh, I had a friend who had the album that came out in 96, um, New Adventures in Hi-Fi. And she let me borrow it for a trip with band. And I listened to that thing almost the entire trip going down from just outside Cleveland down to Myrtle Beach and back. So that's all I listened to for two days. Uh -huh. And I came back and at that point I started getting into their other stuff. And their most other recent album was Monster. So that's where I went to next and started listening to it from there. Well, that makes that makes sense. Fun fact, my um, Wi-Fi is labeled um, New Adventures in Wi-Fi. Um, <laughs> thank you for laughing. That's so funny because to me, this is the album, because I, I was a fan of R.E.M. like as a little kid. Um, so like Document and Green and Out of Time and Automatic for the People. Like I was there for like each one of those because I, I had an older brother um, and he was able to turn me on to some pretty cool stuff as a young kid. So when Monster came out, which is like very intentionally a shift like in musical direction for R.E.M. That's when I tuned out. I was like, what is this? This is, I, I, And I didn't care for it at the time. I'm glad that you um, chose it for us to talk about because it's given me an opportunity to revisit that album. It's funny because I, I did get into New Adventures in, in Hi-Fi, but I just never really got that into Monster. So I'm, I'm glad that you chose it so we can kind of spend some time with it. Yeah, like when I first started, I got into Monster, and then we had, prior to that, I didn't have an older brother to get music into, so it was pretty much whatever my parents were listening to. Oh. My mom listened to country of the day, so you were looking at early 90s country, and my dad listened to oldies, classic rock. So The Doors, Bob Dylan, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Rolling Stones, all of that. So those were my two areas where I was had a lot of interest in. It wasn't until I got to high school and I actually started making friends. I made friends, and they were like, hey, you got to check some of this other stuff out. So that's when I got into like REM, some of the other stuff at the time, uh, Soundgarden, 
I'm trying to think of what else. Nirvana. Like mm-hmm. I, I wasn't big into any of that. Like it was country or classic rock. That's all it was mm-hmm. up until 96, 97. And then it started branching out and going from there. And then from there you went to college and then it was like, I really got into REM at that point. Yeah. So it was, I had every album. I even bought the stuff that were overseas, like the oh. European editions with had another 30 tracks on it. You went deep. So I, I went full on into it. I had everything. Like even now I've got some vinyls of, probably half a dozen other albums that's awesome that i listened to so i went full on into it and that's where i got into morphine and stuff like that so it really it was a jumping point for me to get into expand my musical taste some people would call them maybe overrated i I think they're really underrated i think that they're one of those bands that help create like modern rock as we would think of it so it's cool that you got into them and then we're able to like go backwards and, and dig in deep when you got into this album, did you buy the actual CD? Did you like burn a copy off of someone? What'd you do? Uh, that was in the days of uh, Napster and everything else. So I burned a copy of it. <laughs> okay. Well, you certainly have given REM money since with all yes. of the records and whatnot. So what about when it comes to this album? Like, what, what are the tracks that stand out to you? What are some of your favorite tracks or most important tracks? What's the best of this? Ooh, the best of this everybody goes to frequency because that's the one that they released first. That was the biggest hit off the album. I like it. It, I never turn it off when I hear it on the radio. So I leave that on. I play it for me. Strange currencies has to be the top one for me. I like that one. I can relate to it more because of where I was at the time in high school. Mm. So what I was going through, how I was feeling, you know, just starting to have, like going out on dates, crushes and stuff. So you could kind of relate to what he was saying in the song. So that's the one that always pulls towards me. Yeah, it's it's a kind of a more romantic song with an album that has a lot of kind of empty sexual references in it. Like, do I do you give good head and that kind of <laughs> shit? Um, it's it's a lot of the album's kind of um, cynical. And Strange Currencies stands out to me also as the best song on the album because. Um, as someone who was a fan of their older stuff, the first few songs to me, I'm like, who is this band? What is all this tremolo delay? Um, <laughs> like this doesn't like the vocals are so buried. Like who is this band? And then you get to Star sixty nine, and Star sixty nine very much sounds like REM. So you get that one, they get transparencies back to back. And both of those have more of like a, a feel, more similar to the older stuff. I was actually really surprised that this album was produced by Scott Litt, who did like all of their stuff, because it just feels so different. Yeah, after the previous two albums, even with the issues that they had, because back on Out of Time, because that's when the label was really pushing them to release Shiny Happy People. And the band absolutely hates that song. Me they, too. They didn't want to release it, and they're like, it's awful, but they were forced to do it. So they had written so much music that they had enough for Out of Time and then Automatic for the People. So when they got to the new stuff and doing Monster, it was kind of a middle finger to 
to the uh, label going, hey, you want us to release this? Guess what? Here's, here's a bunch of stuff you can try to release. <laughs> Pick something off of this. Deliberately, and it, and it feels that way. I'm not a commodity, I'm not a commodity. Right. And that song in particular, um, King of Comedy, which to me is the, the weakest song on the album, it does end really strong. The first half, I'm like, this sounds almost like it's 10 years late, but I think that it's like deliberately kind of jarring and uh, certainly has a message. Do you feel like there's a least good song on the album? Ooh, least good? Uh, there doesn't have to be, in your opinion. Mm, well, going through it, I'd have to say uh, maybe Tongue. That, that was the last single released off of it, but I don't, I, not one of my faves. Tongue was a single? Yeah. Oh shit. It's interesting, that, that one really stands out as being unlike a lot of their stuff, which must have been intentional. I've got this theory that Frank Black is one of the most uh, influential musicians of, of America because I feel like he was doing that falsetto shit first. Do you remember, did Michael Stipe do any falsetto stuff before Tongue? Like a whole song, just falsetto? Not that I can remember. Me neither. So did you ever see them live? No, I did not. That's one I wish I would have. And I just I didn't really have the chance to because they were never had a concert where I was at, whether it was Philly or anywhere. And then they broke up in 2011. Yeah. So 12 years, haven't had a chance. So I know they've done some solo work, outside projects, but I don't see them ever actually playing again. Which is wild to me. After over a decade, I certainly would have expected them to reunite and uh, do a tour or something, but they don't seem like they're interested in doing that, do they? No, it doesn't. They got their own projects that they're working on, and then I, Michael Stipe hasn't really done anything musically the last couple of years. I mean, you see him and he's talking politically or politics. So I'd be interesting to see and get them back together, see what they would do now. Do you know if they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I imagine they must be, right? They are, yes. And to what you said earlier, that's why I think they're underrated as yeah. well, because Yes, they're in the Rock and Hall of Fame, but not a lot of people know that they are. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, they were together for 31 years Man. making music, and they had all those albums. Like, Monster was their ninth album. Yeah. So they were making one almost every other year for a while. In 91, 92, they had uh, Automatic and Out of Time, right. back to back. And those two albums were inescapable i mean like they owned the radio waves uh, i thought out of time was a big album but then uh automatic came out and like almost i think like half the fucking album was a single mm -hmm. and and did well yeah it was and it even came back into the mainstream when they had the uh man on the moon the jim carrey movie came out it made a resurgence then too yeah so people started listening to it again just because the title track was man on the moon which I'll put a plug in that album, even though this podcast is called 9394, there will be the occasional album that I color outside the lines for, and that is definitely one that I will do a whole episode on. So to go back to Monster, do you have specific memories tied up with this album, or at least ones that you're willing to share with a faceless audience? <laughs> 
No, not really. There's nothing really that is tied for me for this one. This one is just one that I kind of found and kind of gravitated towards and listened to. Their other albums are ones that I've, I have more personal ties to. This okay. one is just kind of the ones that I've picked up along the way. And it came out in 93, 94, which is, which is why you're here. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so have you always kind of listened to it regularly since it came out? Or was there ever like a lull that it took for you? There's been lulls through it. I think we all go through cycles of what we listen to, depending on our moods and what we're going through. Sure. So, but REM has always been one that I've come back to time after time. But this one is one every couple of years I get back into it. Okay. So, so like one of those bands you stick with, but maybe cycle through different albums in a way. Right, because there's each album has a different feel, so it just depends yeah. on what you're feeling at the time. Sure. So this is one that I can see going back to now, and after listening to it the last couple of days, was like, okay, I'm gonna come back to this one now. That, I mean, that's how I feel too. I mean, I, like I admitted at the start of this, it's not been an album that I ever dug that deeply into, but I've really enjoyed uh, listening to it the last few days. And, and, and there's a couple songs on here where I was like, ah, I'm not so sure. But the songs that are strong are really strong, and the overall feel of the album is really solid. Again, I'm not in love with all that delay, but I do think that it's a well-written album. The lyrics on it are just... It's ones that you have to dig deep and with them being turned down and the music being more music forward, you have to really pay attention and try to listen to them. Even at that, this last time, last couple of days, I've had to look up the lyrics because I'm like singing in my head, I'm like, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> so then you look up, you go through it and you're like, holy cow. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I, that's really what he's saying. Got it. Yep. Yep. Every, everyone can get laid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, there was a couple of points where I'm like, okay, he's making a sexual joke or something like that. And then I started reading the lyrics. I'm like, there's a lot in here that's blatantly sexual, but you can't tell it by just listening to it. You have to really pay attention and watch what's going on in the songs. Which, which might be partly why the vocals are so buried and even more of a long finger to Warner Brothers because they're trying to, like, again, make, like, you to your earlier point, they want to make stuff that's hard to release. Right. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of what I was thinking listening to it. I'm like, man, if, to release this today, nobody's going to think twice about it because, I mean, after this point, you've got a bunch of other stuff that's released it. It says a lot worse than what this says, so. That's, that, that's a really good point, which brings me to a... I made a point on my first episode about Mad About You being overly sexual, and I came across like a fucking Puritan. I don't actually think it's that hardcore, but the 90s was a little bit more of a conservative time. Yeah, it was, especially with everything going on with Tipper Gore and all of her stuff with yeah. trying to get the ratings on the albums and stuff like sure. that. Sure, yeah. So this is kind of a, they're not actually swearing on it, but they're making any news and you can't really tell what's going on. So it's only going to be the people who buy the album, who listen to it, constantly that can pick up on some of this stuff so it's kind of hidden but not really <laughs> mm-hmm. one of the biggest things is for this album it was a real turning point in the, in the way they did music so i loved all the albums before this and this is kind of a transition going into my favorite album by them adventures in high five that's my favorite one hands down that i love but this is definitely the transition point mm. and it's yeah. those points that interest me why are you making the changes what changes are you going to make mm. so you could listen to their previous albums and you could hear it where it was more they had other instruments they were trying to focus on so you had the mandolin you had mm-hmm. piano you had other stuff um strings and in this one it's more back to
bass, drums, that's all you get. Yeah. And it's interesting to see where they go from here because it, you see on this one, they focus on that. And then you had an organ on one of the songs. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, they're still using that, but it's in a way that is new. It's not what they were doing prior. So you can kind of see the shift in where they're going. And then when you listen to New Adventures, they wrote that while they were on the Monster Tour. And they recorded most of the songs while they were on the Monster Tour. Oh. So you can see where that where Monster has an effect on New Adventures. That's awesome. So Yeah, I mean I, I was I had made the point before, um, and I'm sure I will again, that in my opinion, usually the first two or three albums are the best in a band because it's before they kind of get into this rhythm. But with R.E.M., yeah, I think you make a good point. They had kind of crescendoed with Out of Time and Automatic in terms of how, I don't want to say overwrought because I love those albums, but in terms of like the collection of instruments and how detailed they're going to get. Well, a monster is very much a return to form while at the same time being in that's very much straightforward rock and roll. But as you say, it's, it's very much a, like a transitional period and a big departure for them, which is an interesting point and a brave point in their career. Yeah. Cause they, when they asked him about it, they all, the, uh, I forget who it was. Was it Mills? When they asked him about the album, he said it's rock, but he used air quotes for it. <laughs> So it was not really rock, not really alternative. It's kind of this conglomeration of all different types. And it's going back to what they made when they made Murmur and Reckoning, back to their roots of where they started from, but still using the lyrics and stuff that you've grown accustomed to hearing from them. So it went back to, you kept the lyrics, but they changed the music and went back to what they were doing when they first started. Lyrically, you look at it and Stipe took the road of being personal with it. So there's a lot of me, a lot of I, uh, he was singing it from the viewpoint of the character in the song. And I think a lot of it is from the celebrity that they've had to deal with. Like they became famous and this is them dealing with the spotlight being on them for so long. And I think that's why you don't see them having the issues like other bands did. Like they were able to deal with their emotions and everything else and they put it into their music, which is why he sings it from that perspective, at least in my point of view. Hmm. So he's using me, I, in describing the character in the songs but really it's it's them, it's the band. It's like, they're looking at, this is us being, we're, we are celebrities, but this is us dealing with that. Hmm. And they're talking about what they were going through at the time. Almost like he like disassociated a little bit to, uh, to be able to talk about the characters because he was uncomfortable with that level of fame maybe. Yeah, because a lot of the interviews, they don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. So you don't get a lot of, they weren't happy or they were going through something. They didn't like the spotlight. They liked creating the music and stuff, but it was that being famous part that they, I don't think they ever really dealt with publicly. They right. dealt with it internally and were able to control it and never had to actually cross over and deal with it at that point. Yeah, I feel like with a lot of musicians, like I was watching a documentary on Kurt Cobain last night, Montage of Heck, and so many musicians of that era, almost any era, they want to make a living from what they do and they want some validation and recognition, but they don't want to be unable to go down to the 7-Eleven because they're going to get attacked by paparazzi. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what they were putting out there was, we like this, but we want it to be on our terms. We want to control all, our lives mm -hmm. for that. And speaking of Nirvana, going back, Kurt Cobain wanted to work with R.E.M. on a song and collaborate with them. And I think if they would have got that chance, that would have been amazing. Instead, what they got was Scott Litt uh, coming and remixing a couple takes off the singles off In Utero, presumably against Nirvana's will, but I've heard conflicting stories about that. 
Yeah, that would have been something to hear, though, being have an album or at least a, just one single with them on it. Because I hear the, just their vocal styles between the two of them would be interesting to hear. Yeah, No Alternative would have been a good opportunity to do that because they, they both were on there, weren't they? Yeah. And, you know, one, one last point about them kind of changing their sound. For a band that stayed together for three decades, and that was their ninth album, I have to give them extra credit for not taking the techno route. Like so many bands, like you look at U2 or so many other bands, like when they start to hit that point of where they're like bored with what they're doing, they're like, well, how technological, how, how like, um, pr- you know, overly produced can I make this? And they end up going like an electronic route, um, which doesn't seem like REM did that as much. They, they seem to be rooted in rock yeah i think that was their main focus and that's where they stayed they knew who they were they knew what they were and they didn't deviate too far from that because they knew we can make this we can try something else but they've made changes and they sound different in all their album in their albums you can hear the progression of them changing their style but always staying within that rock alternative type category right in there These are good points, and you're increasing my appreciation for this album. I've got a couple more questions for you. Before we wrap up, um, when we do wrap up, what song would you think would be the most appropriate song to go out on? To go out on? Yeah. Oh, uh, hmm. Guilty pleasure on this one. I don't want to admit that I like it because I don't. (laughs) Crush with eyeliner. Okay. I would say that one, I was going through it, and like, they're trying to describe somebody. You're a sad sparrow, three miles of bad road. And I'm like trying to imagine this person in my head. I'm like, oh, that person just looks awful. And they're talking about, this is my crush. Aren't they so great? And you're like, no, not really how you're describing them. Not really what I'd be looking for or going for, but okay. All right, that'll be the one. Sad tomato. Uh, Indeed. Excellent. All right, so here, here is my random 90s question for you to wrap things up here. Okay. Billboard's top five songs. When this came out on September 27th, 1994, I'm going to give you the top five Billboard songs. We may have to like stop and listen to them because I've never even heard a couple of them that I'm aware of. So these are your options. You have to gun to your head. You have to rock out to one of these songs, only not actually. Don't worry. I'm not going to make you listen to any of them if you don't want to. The number one song on September 27th, 1994 was I'll Make Love to You by Boys to Men. The number two song was Stay, I Missed You by Lisa Loeb from Reality Bites soundtrack. You could get down with Luther Vandross and Mariah Carey and listen to their version of Endless Love. Um, and then it starts to get into stuff I'm not really familiar with. Babyface I've heard of, but I don't know the song, When Can I See You. When can I see you again? But that was number four. And number five, a group called Changing Faces, Stroke You Up. Speaking of sexual. Which one of these are you going to have to listen to in your drive home now? <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> you don't. You don't. <laughs> it's not required. I mean, of those. Oh God. I've listen, I've heard all five of those, none of which are ones that I would voluntarily listen to. <laughs> yeah, I had a feeling. Me too. I would say, oh God, probably stay Lisa Loeb. You say I only hear what I want to. Out of those five, that would be the you least horrific to listen to. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm inclined to agree with you. I mean, I, out of nostalgia, I'll make love to you would be okay. Um, but if I had to actually, like, dig into one of these songs, uh, Lisa Loeb's Stay would have to be the one. If and when, in the hopes that you come back next time, I'll give you something that's maybe less, um, like, the least of worst options. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thank you so much. Say goodbye to the people. Have a good one, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Travis. Thanks, Adam. Some bands I'd like to name check, and one of them is R.E.M. Dude, I gotta say, I'm really, really happy that my old friend Adam Thomas went out of his way to come see me. Uh, well, I don't know that he made the trip up to Michigan specifically to see me, but I, I really appreciate him coming out and uh, recording and choosing this album. Because I am someone that considers myself a pretty big R.E.M. fan. I really love them. And this has for a long time been, I'm sorry to say, my least favorite album. But uh, listening to it repeatedly in preparation with him, I've not actually stopped since a few days ago, actually, when, um, when I recorded with him. I've still just been jamming Monster because this is a really... It, I, I have underrated the album, even listening to myself as I'm mixing. Uh, I wish I'd praised it more in my conversation with Adam. This is tongue. Even the, the song that Adam said that he thought was at least good on the album, I'm like, well, I'm kind of coming around to it. I'm like, oh, man, maybe uh, this might be my favorite song on the album. Yeah, it is a fascinating motherfucker. And uh, Adam is just as genuine and sweet a dude as they come. It was really a delight to spend some time with him and talk with him. I hope he had a great time. I think he did. Uh, I will have him back on for sure. As I said before, every episode, I'm going to ask someone to help me out and come on the podcast. You can choose virtually any album from 1993 or 1994 that you want. Any album that you are passionate about. Come on, we will talk about it. You can gush. Uh, if I'm going to gush too, it's typically going to be an album that I'm also passionate about. So that's not always going to be every episode. Sometimes it's going to be an album that I'm not even that familiar with, perhaps. But if anybody is out there that is passionate about the album Dusk by the band The The, this album came out in 1993. And it, along with a handful of others, I gotta thank slash blame for making me the sad bastard that I am today. I love it so much. Top five 
albums, just like Where You Been. It's right up there in that top five albums of my life. So if someone wants to come on and talk the those dusk with me, that would be great. Or any album of your liking, contact me at 9394podcast at gmail.com. Or, you know, I'm on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook, 9394music, a music podcast with Travis Roy. Text me if you know me personally. Um, what else? Oh, yeah, follow. Follow the old podcast. You know, hit the follow button, subscribe, do whatever. That would be appreciated. I don't actually really want to build a big following or anything. I just want the people that are listening to be updated when I do post, especially early on here, because I'm going to be going, I think, week to week, but maybe not. I don't know. I'll put them out when I'm able. Week to week is sounding good, though. All right. Uh, I still have no outro for you, like nothing clever, um, which I guess saying nothing clever and just kind of bumbling uh, my way through this at the end is going to be my trademark. That sounds sadly appropriate. Goodbye. podcast with Travis Roy is a labor of love. It is not and never will be monetized. Please don't sue.